This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. Welcome to Postocalypse, the podcast about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be sharing the highs and lows of postgraduate study. Welcome to episode five. I'm your host, Katie Pegg. So today I'm joined by Mads Ayafreit, a first year PhD student whose research aims to improve methods and cell tracking to be used in cancer therapies. We'll be talking about her research as well as the challenges of being a cross-disciplinary student and giving back to the community through public engagement. Also joining us on our panel are Azan, a master's and soon-to-be PhD student in cancer research, and Peter, a second-year PhD student in radiochemistry. So hi, Mads, how are you doing? You okay? I'm very well, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Right, so you work with cell tracking. Yes. Okay, so when I think about this, because of my background as a molecular biologist and specifically in cancer, I think about when um, people do cell lineage tracing experiments, for example. So for this, you'll engineer cells to produce a fluorescent protein that might change colour depending on where the cell is or what stage of life the cell is. Um, but obviously you're working with patients, right? So you can't really engineer fluorescent proteins and stick people under a microscope. Okay, so so I'm not really working with patients yet. Okay, yeah. That will be like way down the line. And before that, obviously, they need to go into animals and, and not yeah. first, in fact, in vitro. So what you say is will be extremely useful for me as a beginner molecular biologist. <laughs> I can only hope to one day understand what those things just you said meant. So the cell tracking we're thinking of or in the cancer therapy context is being able to track cells that have been injected into people for therapeutic purposes. So there's a new form of personalised medicine that's becoming available in Europe, and that's cell therapy, where your cells get taken out of you and get re-engineered to produce a specific protein which sits on the surface of that cell. And that protein should recognise cancer cells and be able to um, fight the cancer, or it could also be used for immune diseases, etc. as well. Okay, so this is stuff like CAR T cells? Correct, exactly. The CAR protein, chimeric antigen receptor, goes back in and recognises something on the surface of the cancer cells Mm -hmm. and that's what makes them specific for that person's cancer. And you can't do this with any one cells. You have to have it from the patient which you want to treat because otherwise your immune system would recognise those cells and produce a massive immune response Mm. and attack those cells which you wanted to be therapeutic. So something that's unknown at the moment is why some of these cell therapies don't work. So in clinical trials, there's been a few deaths within the last few years. And that can be caused by cytokine reaction where your body overcompensates with its immune response and recognizes those cells, even though they're the same persons, but they've been re-engineered. Or, for instance, they find brain inflammation in autopsy and it's unknown why this happens. Ah, Okay. So by being able to visualize the cells which you inject, you can hopefully locate them and figure out whether any bad effects are because of the cells or because of anything else and then in future as well whether any future cancers that a patient gets are related to those cells because you you don't know there are quite a lot of risks with genetic editing. I mean this is brilliant in theory because if you think about the first cancer treatments when you were just piling chemotherapeutics and nasty chemicals on people yeah and then we moved on to the first targeted therapies so there's um Herceptin which was first introduced for breast cancer in 1990s I think yeah and now we're moving on to fully re-engineering someone's own immune system or someone's own defense against cancer exactly to cure their cancer so that's brilliant but there's still a lot we don't know about it exactly um so 
cancer therapies initially, they were searching for the golden bullet. So something that you could put in everybody mm. and would cure their cancer. The universal cure. Exactly. But now we're kind of moving on to think of personalized golden bullet therapy. So mm. instead of just having a one off the shelf, one size fits all, you can um, really tailor it to each person and hopefully reduce the amount of side effects that people would get. So quite a lot of the cell therapies that have been worked on are now in clinical trials and I think there's something that has actually been FDA approved some CAR T cell therapies that have been FDA approved in America yes so there are actually only two that have been approved by the FDA and that's Mm -hmm. for the US market so for both those agents that have been approved the cost of treatment is incredibly high as you can imagine because everything is personalized and the technologies aren't scalable so also that's for America and in Europe we tend to be a little bit behind the European Medical Agency is generally a few years behind. So they hope therapies will hopefully come to um, the UK and, and Europe very soon. However, they it's important to stress that they're only for really end of the line blood cell cancers and they're quite niche therapies. And there's a long way that needs to go before it's ever more of a benefit to give people these very risky therapies than it is to try and give them more and more rounds of the conventional chemotherapies, which we know work and don't have long term effects. Okay. I mean, maybe back to your research for a second. While we're waiting for those therapies to get better (laughs) and to come to Europe, how is your research going to affect these kinds of treatment modalities? Really good question. So hopefully my research will make that wait shorter. Okay. So my research will aim to help to validate these cell therapies so that they can come to the market quicker. So for instance, at the moment, there aren't that many ways to check whether the cell therapies are safe or effective. And especially um, further down the line, if you're giving young patients and cell therapies are currently approved for only uh, young patients with so these blood cancers. Leukemias and lymphoma. Yeah. And so like if that. you're giving the if you're giving a child a cell therapy at the age of three, hopefully it'll live for at least 97 more years. Yeah. And if they get cancer in the future, you want to be able to know whether it's due to those cell therapies that you gave them. So one of the things I'm working on is trying to make the cells express a mutant protein, which the cells that are therapeutic will get along with the, for instance, the chimeric antigen receptor, right. which is the therapeutic functionality. And by having the therapeutic functionality and the think of it as like a safety check protein um, you can tell where where those cells are so if a future tumor occurs in a in a patient if you give the molecule that goes to the safety check protein then you know if the tumor is made up of all those all those cells that you gave how do you modify what you want to put in to be the little flag for these be the safety check yeah the safety check yeah so um i'm using i'm learning in fact molecular biology techniques because my background is in chemistry and the molecular biology techniques involve editing the dna that codes for those proteins so if you think of the dna as being an instruction leaflet for the cell to to know how to create the proteins which it can put on its surface or wherever it wants to within the cell i'm taking a letter out of that instruction manual and changing what the meaning of the word is So one of the amino acids that was inside that protein is changed. And that amino acid change, we know from previous research in other groups, creates a mutant protein which actually doesn't work. Mm, And we want that protein to not work because it's an enzyme. So we don't want the molecule to interact with its matching safety check protein and for that to then affect changes, which changes the behavior of the cells. We want them to stay doing what what we wanted them to be doing in the first place, which was therapeutic actions. And then how do you visualize this mechanism? We use radioactive atoms. Ah. And by using chemistry, we can incorporate these radioactive atoms into molecules. And the molecules either go inside the cells using a receptor or through a transporter protein and then the radioactive atom within that molecule 
is unstable and when it decays it emits what you can think of as like a flash inside the body and that flash is then imaged by a PET or a SPECT scanner which have special detectors which can then visualize whereabouts those radioactive molecules are and we rely on the fact that the radioactive molecules are accumulated or attached to the cells or tumor for instance that you're trying to look for. Okay so how sensitive is this? Can you see this? It's really, really sensitive. Oh, wow. PET and SPECT are imaging modalities where you can see through the entire body. So you can only see groups of cells, but a tumour can be about a millimetre and you'll see, you'll be able to see that on a, on a PET scan. Okay, so that's pretty small, a millimetre, that's quite yeah. small. Within a whole person's body, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty good going, I'd say. So for your research, you're mutating genes, you're editing proteins. Do you ever think about the ethical implications of this? Yeah, so... I think this is really important to um, sort of meter the promise of cell therapies. Cell therapies are always going to be risky, and that's why they're only available as last-in-line therapies currently. Genetic editing and genetic engineering is controversial because changing somebody's genetic information should not be done lightly. It's not natural. Whilst that's a little bit too deep for me to go into right now, (laughs) I really appreciate that um, there's gravity to the situation. However, my research would be adding on to genetic editing engineering that's already been done. So as I was saying, the therapeutic protein is on the same cell as that safety check protein. Well, that safety check protein is only there because it'll be attached onto the end of of the code for the therapeutic protein. So for my research, I feel quite good about not introducing my own genetic mutations just for the sake of it. But I think um, there's a lot of uncertainty currently about how mutagenesis and also CRISPR been recently a paper saying how actually um, when you're looking for the gene mutation caused by CRISPR you can see it happening Mm. but because your genome is made up of about three billion base pairs not just the hundred that you're looking at people have been seeing really big changes which make cells either die or they could create cancer that sort of thing so the gravity isn't lost on me yeah so everything of this nature always has to be done carefully doesn't it yeah really careful so have you ever heard Jennifer Doudna speak no. So she's one of the people who co-created CRISPR or the CRISPR techniques. Oh, really? And she always talks about how she has this recurring dream oh. and she's in her office and her assistant comes in and says, oh, Jennifer, there's someone who wants to speak to you who really wants to use this CRISPR technology. He thinks it's amazing. So she goes through and it's a man with his back facing her and then he slowly spins round and it's Adolf Hitler <gasps> and he wants to use this technology for eugenics and all that horrible stuff so oh. she speaks a lot about how important it is to tread carefully with these sorts of therapies or oh, don't you give them a goosebumps <laughs> <laughs> but it's good that people are doing them because this is going to happen this is the way the industry is going and yeah. it could really really help people so it's important to make sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands yeah but at the same time I'm definitely not the wrong hand. So. No, <laughs> we trust you. It's all right. Oh, thanks. <laughs> okay, so on that note, Peter, you work in a similar field. What's your take on this? I think it's really interesting, but then I am quite biased because it's also what I work in. The one thing that reminded me of in particular was I read about on, on Stat, which is a really good newsletter, but it was, it, was a, it was a group in Harvard and this professor who uh, works on all sorts, he's got like a 50-person team. One of his employees is a... Is, Bioethicist. Can anyone say that better? Ethicist? Yes, bioethicist. So her job was basically to consider the ethical considerations of his work, which I think is quite a unique way of doing it. From the offset, I guess, from the research that he does, from from the conception, from when you're probably writing grant codes and stuff, she's there 
So it's not an afterthought, I guess. Arsene, do you have any ethical considerations in your work? So I think a lot of the time when you're doing work in the lab, the patient aspect of it seems or becomes quite isolated and you don't really think about the impact that your research is supposed to have on these patients who are actually suffering from these illnesses. So working on patient tissues, I had to see the pathologist actually cutting up someone's cheek and there was actually a tooth still in inside this tissue. So that was quite, you know, Oh my goodness. Gross. What did you do with the tooth? So he kind of just cut the tissue up into sections to be um, fixed and stained by the pathology lab. So the tooth was kind of discarded. But it was awful to watch that happen yeah that really humanizes that piece of tissue definitely and this was a patient who's still you know alive which I found quite shocking as well yeah do you use any like living tissue from that or is it is it then sort of dead I suppose once you've fixed it yeah it becomes have you ever used like biops tissue that you then keep alive and then you're kind of you're then looking at a part of a person who's still living and that part of them is still living I guess people do do that right and yeah Henrietta Lacks cells yeah healer cells I kind of thought that earlier when you, you were saying this and some people think, oh, it's just cells. But then actually in, in the case of the healer cells, which if you don't know, is basically uh, the cells from uh, this woman. Oh, when was it from? Do you know? Mads? It was quite a poor black woman. Back yeah, when, yeah. Back when cancer was Decades and decades being... and decades and decades ago. And, and they basically took some of her cells without her permission. And uh, they are now a immortalized cell line, which are used in labs all over the world for tons and tons of things and so there are more cells now of Henrietta Lacks alive than were ever in her actual body which is just a crazy crazy fact and for anyone listening imperative reading is the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks it's really good and it's on Kindle so and I'm not sponsored by Kindle either (laughs) (laughs) yeah I really want to read that what do you guys think about the use of cell lines because we're using people's immortalized like tissue I find that quite freaky when you think about it because they're dead, but we are still using their cells and we continue to split them and harvest them. I'm probably tell I do not think of it that way. I think I'm quite removed from that process. I think because the, the stage of research I'm at, like I'm, I'm just so far away from kind of that patient interaction. So like to me, the cell lines that I use are just some cells that are a certain type of cells. And yeah, and most, most cell lines I do use are taken from like patient biopsies. I suppose as well, you like grow to sort of dislike these cells as well because they're always trying to die on you. Yeah. If well, you, you don't take you, care of them properly and then actually you should be grateful every day that you get to use them. Yeah. It's quite interesting. I think I've also become quite accustomed to it, but whenever I explain what I do in the lab to my non-scientific friends, their eyes always like shoot up with this weird shock because they're like, you're like Frankenstein trying to, <laughs> you know, immortalize these cells and do these crazy stuff to them. What, what are you doing exactly? So yeah, we're trying to cure cancer pretty much. But Yeah. That's a winner. People love it when he's like that. Mm, it's all for, I get I get a lot of those sort of looks. Not even sort of negative looks, but kind of that like initial like shock reaction um, when I talk about animal work. Because um, mm. as a radiochemist, I have used some animal models and I've managed to translate some of my work into animals. Do you and think the benefits of the research outweigh the suffering that's caused on the animal? So so when whenever I have this conversation, and for the most part when I talk to people, I think they are sort of, quite open-minded with animal research but I find that not a lot of people realize kind of the the time and effort and care put into ensuring basically every single stage that the animal doesn't suffer um the whole process of it is is uh, first and foremost is 
is the animal suffering and that is your first consideration and things have improved so much since since the like the bad old days where animals only had like grating to stand on top of and their droppings yeah would go through that grating and also their toes would get stuck but now they're allowed um lots of food and play things as well even yeah yeah exactly so so even the kind of pain and suffering consideration goes down to just the way they're kept and and then their mental well-being um yeah. so ensuring they can they can play as uh, welfare and health yeah very much Would you, do you think you'll have to work with any animals during your PhD? So I had to choose between two PhD projects, one which involved an animal model, mice, um, and me inflicting them with eye cancer and removing the eye and doing the experiments on that. And mm. that was a big thing for me to consider between the two projects. And it was like a put off for me for that one, even though it was probably in a better lab and in a better um, institution. I think I just didn't feel comfortable with doing that to an animal and I picked the other one. Why didn't you feel comfortable? Is, is that okay to go into? Or? Yeah, of course. Um, I just, I don't know. I know that, that, you know, it would be obviously benefiting humans in some way in the long in the long run, but I just didn't want to physically cause that to an animal and have to, you know, see it suffer, mm. I guess. So I haven't had to do it either and I'm just, I'm just really nervous about when that, when that day will come because I don't think anybody wants to, to do this stuff to animals. But exactly. we obviously have these, like, rationales in our brain which make it okay. It is a personal thing. Like, I think a lot of people, especially scientists, accept that it's kind of a, a necessary evil. But at the end of the day, it's your personal choice whether you, you, you want to actively do it or not. So you mentioned that you have a background in chemistry, Mads. How yeah. has it been, like, going into a very molecular biology-orientated project? And has it has there been... A lot of challenges or has it been more beneficial to have this switch of disciplines or this bridging of two different disciplines yeah so um it started off with denial no, Jay. um <laughs> so actually i was quite reticent to go into it and um just because you know it's very foreign i, I knew nothing whereas you know my degrees in chemistry like i can do that um so because obviously a phd is quite a massive undertaking obviously i, I want everything to kind of be perfect and that's that's part of my perfectionism coming out it's not really that useful for a PhD um but I found that the lab which I went into was super super helpful and no one's short of experience to like give me or help me and I've basically taken everything step by step so at first I tried to approach everything by just reading textbooks and like figuring out what I was going to be doing trying to visualize the molecules coming together and it was kind of the wrong approach because it's it's too much of a wide approach. You have to sort of, I've had to go into it doing something and learning about what I've done because you can't think about molecular biology as a chemist. You have to kind of done it to then understand what you've done. And it's frustrating for someone like me because I really don't like to make mistakes. So it's a massive learning curve, but I've, I've enjoyed it. And I'm hoping that it'll give me some extra skills that when I actually go out into the world of work, which I've been avoiding for so long, it, it'll really do me do me well but nerve-wracking. Are you doing anything out of your comfort zone in your PhD or I master's? I don't think I will be, no. My master's was very much cancer, like molecular biology-based, and I have a background in biomedical science, so I didn't really step out of my comfort zone, and I steered the PhD towards that as well, because I just Well, you'll thought... still have the option to, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I mean, I think it's good to push yourself in some way and to challenge, but I think... A PhD is difficult enough as it is. I just <laughs> decided to steer it more to my kind of previous expertise. Yeah. So so I'm sort of similar to Mads in the sense that my background is chemistry, but I don't think I do that much chemistry nowadays. 
I also look at cell labeling and tracking with radiation. So I wouldn't say I'm like a biologist, but I do a lot of kind of cell-based work. Um, and that was almost kind of instantaneous. So I went from being a chemist to doing tissue culture, which is something I've never done, never, didn't know anything about. Daunting? No, not really, because we, we, I, I got taught quite well. But then I also found that I really enjoyed it. And now, and so kind of I found that I wanted to do more and more of that and learn more and more. I think I remember I started out thinking, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll look at this chemistry and how that relates to this. But now I'm, I think more in like how it answers certain biological questions. So I've kind of, I think, tailored my PhD more towards the biological end now. I think I say I'm a recovering chemist. <laughs> so thanks, guys, for that discussion. That was really interesting. So Mads, back to you. So I think as time goes on, we're realising more and more that having people with different skill sets and different areas of expertise is actually really useful, especially in areas like cancer research. So you've obviously done chemistry and now you're doing molecular biology stuff. What else do you do outside of the lab to add another string to your bow? So aside from sports, which I really, really love, uh, I do a lot of that in my free time. and It enables me to process a lot of things that happen in the day. Uh, So what sport do you do? Uh, I do a lot of running and cycling. Mm, um, okay. I kind of would like to fancy myself a triathlete, Ooh. but like I'm rubbish, so. <laughs> there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> also, there's just not enough time. There's never enough time to train. Uh. Um, so aside from my sort of sporting trials, I I like to try and communicate my science with um, friends. When I, when I see them, they always ask me what I'm up to. And it's really kind to actually have a friend who we meet up with and we, and we go around the park and listen to podcasts sometimes about science and we listen to them with our headphones on we're walking around the park and people look at us like these are weird people just walking around (laughs) with their headphones on not talking and like like... laughing at the same time (laughs) and then we'll talk afterwards so maybe we'll do this this very meta maybe we'll do it for this Mm, yeah i do anyway so um sports and podcasting and some public engagement so Um, sometimes it's useful to pick up some extra money by doing tutorials or demonstrations at the university, so KCL. Um, but also I've recently been involved with um, the Royal Society uh, Summer of Science Festival, which Peter actually uh, was key in organising, so he can tell you more about that later. Wow. But, um, yeah, so I want to do more sort of like going to schools and, and I find it really interesting. And it's also mm-hmm. kind of an ego boost, yeah. <laughs> so do you get, when you go to schools and things like that, do you get a whole load of kids looking at you like, wow, that's amazing? Well, I imagine you would. I haven't actually done any yet, <laughs> okay. but um, I have two really, really cute little cousins who I'm trying to sort of persuade to do science. Yeah. So that's my main thing is sort of like making them see the one true light. Mm. So how old are they now? Uh, f- like three and seven. Okay, so <laughs> so still quite young. <laughs> brainwashing years to get my through. science kind of like is pretty is pretty much like we take photos of people's insides, but that's Aww. pretty cool for a for a seven year old. Yeah, definitely. Do you kind of think that's an important part of your work to be able to disseminate it to the public? I think for any uh, scientifically minded person, a the practice that like talking to the public gives you for disseminating your research but also for um, future vivas any like media relations that you might have to do in your future career whatever that may be Um, and also I've always held the belief that somebody once instilled in me that if you can't explain your thesis in two minutes then just quit (laughs) so (laughs) might as well give up now (laughs) I mean I'm I'm pretty much out of practice at the moment because I've been writing a, a big long report which which sort of expands that two minutes doesn't it yeah it's a different way of thinking when you're having to write a report compared to 
speaking in a condensed and yeah but also um i find that members of the public can sometimes perceive things that you not can't necessarily see with your narrow view of your research Mm. so um talking with members of the public helps you make connections that you might not have otherwise their personal experiences are always very different to yours yeah um and they make the, the questions are good practice as well for for other talks and conferences that you might have do you come from a scientific background is your family scientific no, really not, actually. Um, my mum always says that she quit chemistry when she saw the periodic table, so goodness <laughs> so knows when that was. On. Yeah, I don't even... <laughs> um, and my dad is does does business and he loves sales and sort of thing, so oh, I don't wow. know where I got it from, but my brother is also a physicist. Oh, wow, okay. Um, but I find that actually a lot of people, I feel like, have a head start because their parents um, are, yeah. like, professors or whatever. I don't know. Is that the case for you? No, well, I was okay. going to say that um, I think actually having a non-scientific family gives you a head start on the public engagement stuff because, I mean, my mum was an actress and my dad worked wow. in insurance and my brother and sister are both very creative. Yeah. Um, but I always have to explain my my work to them. Even, even stuff like DNA yeah. was such a long time ago for them mm. um, that... I find it really useful to sit down and and chat to people about what I do. So I feel like that's made me kind of get really involved in public engagement just because. And there is so much. Yeah, and grandparents. Yeah, yeah, grandparents are there. They're amazing. (laughs) I had to explain a little while ago about why x-rays can be dangerous because someone, my boyfriend's grandma, was saying that when she was pregnant back in the day, she's quite old now, instead of using ultrasound in those days, they used x-rays. Isn't that mad that they did that? That is really cool. Yeah. I mean... But I mean, in, context, <laughs> in context, the the amount of radiation that an X-ray gives you is yeah. is really low. It's like oh, the yeah, same yeah. radiation as you would get in like a short haul flight. Oh yeah. So it's not really something. That's a good way of explaining it. Definitely helps with public engagement to put the radiation into into context with yeah. things that people can wrap their heads around. Um, it's quite a scary thing for a lot of people. Yeah, people do get quite scared when you say the word radiation, don't they? Yeah, they yeah. think Chernobyl. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then you've lost the Mutant fish with three heads and that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> so stuff that you see in The Simpsons. Yeah, exactly, all of that. <laughs> okay, so over to our panel. Peter, as a radiochemist, how do you make radiation seem less scary to the public? Um, great question. Um, Mads mentioned the, the Summer Science Exhibition and... We had a good example there. Um, the, if you're unaware, basically, this is at the Royal Society, but they open up for a week in the summer and they get lots of school children and members of the public to come into. So so our, our task that the department kind of set ourselves was to educate the public on, on, on radiation. So we had three main goals, which was to tell the public that radiation was, was everywhere, it's all around us, uh, and how you can use radiation for detecting disease and how you can use radiation for treating disease. So I was involved in coming up with an activity for demonstrating that radiation was all around us. And you guys were just talking about radiation dose and, you know, the doses that you get from an, an operation or, or imaging. And so the, the idea that we came up with um, was basically, we, we, it was sort of like a time trial thing, but the, the main principle was that we got everyday items. So we had um, banana, we had Brazil nuts, Low sodium salt. Low sodium salt, yeah. Uh, smoke alarm, uh, an old glow-in-the-dark watch, and then a rock, which we got from, from Cornwall. And so we said all these items laid out, and we said, okay, right, all these items are radioactive. Why don't you try and rank them for us? And so people had to kind of like think about why they could be radioactive. But the, the principle was simple. It was just that basically 
these were things that everyone has in their house and they are radioactive and that it, it is dangerous but it's not always dangerous and it's not a scary thing and you could open up a dialogue about that you know well if these are in our house then you know and but i hear that radiation is scary you know why are these different types of radiation like what what's the difference there um and then you could almost always then segue into the other aspects which was the different types of radiation could be like well you can actually use the certain types of radiation to to look at disease in the body or whenever someone brought up the fact that you know radiation is quite scary and dangerous you'd be like that is true but the same thing that makes radiation dangerous can make it dangerous for a, a tumor so it, it's it's making these links do you think that's a really good way of sort of normalizing radioactivity for the public i think that's a really good way to get the public to think about these issues with the hands-on activities so I also do some public engagement myself um, with an external society called London Innovation Society, and we try to inspire young minds with the um, work done by PhD students, but also engineers as well. So it's a very interdisciplinary team. So how do you get involved with that? And also what sort of, sort of ideas and activities have, come up, have you come up with? So I was approached by one of the um, founders of the society um, because I knew them through another like activity that I'd done with them. So I went, and this was in the first year of my BSc, actually, so I've been with them for a couple of years now. So I got involved through um, one of the founders who I'd met through another um, activity that I'd done. And I've been with them for a couple of years now. And basically, we have lots of different workshops. But my one is specifically on bio-inspired technologies. And I talk about the gecko and how it's inspired us to basically design these new gloves to hopefully in the future climb walls like in the Mission Impossible movie. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's in the, in the ending scene. Um, so it's because of the Wanderwell forces in the um, hands of the gecko that allows it to basically climb vertically, which it's very close relative. The lizard can't do. So I think that's quite interesting. So you're making gecko gloves for, for people, basically. Basically, but in a more like um, practical sense, it's basically used for, you know, in the, in cars, you can use the gecko pads to stick your phone and stuff like that. Ah, okay. But yeah, the kids love it. It's not as cool as climbing a building. No, that's, that's <laughs> the point that I end with, to give the kids ah, yeah, something yeah. to think about. <laughs> so something that I think is like a little bit oblique, but back to like radiation affecting people in ways that they didn't know, is after World War II, a certain group of scientists decided that they would try and grow crops in like concentric rings of different radius away from a, a gamma radiation source so it was called like atomic gardening and a lot of people don't know that's how like a lot of like a, a ver there's like a variety of peppermint that came out of that those experiments and also grapefruits that came out of the experiments because the theory was that like that gamma radiation caused a tiny bit of dna damage and the cells that had dna damage that weren't killed actually created mutations that affected the flavour or the size of the plant. And that really captured pu public imagination back in the day when people were like, oh my gosh, a giant, giant carrot. Like, look at those mutants. And I think that's actually where a lot of misconception about radiation growing three-eyed fish and stuff comes from. But I do think that's really cool. And a lot, a lot of people don't know, actually, that, um, you know, atomic energy can actually, like, produce good things as well as be a bit scary. Do you focus on that in your public engagement activities as well, the good kind of aspects of atomic radiation? Um, yes, but not necessarily with, with respect to the like gardening stuff, more with respect to medical imaging, because that's quite a tangible thing. A lot of people have experience or have somebody in their family that's had cancer. It's really a lot more relatable. So if a lot of people have experience with cancer or know about it, how do you relay these types of information and talk about it with children? 
So that's the one thing that gets discussed a lot in our meetings because a lot of our workshops are aimed at secondary school um, pupils, which obviously they are at a level of maturity, but talking about things like cancer can be quite tricky. So we try to limit it to things like genetics and how genetics can sometimes go wrong rather than focusing on like a specific disease, um, just in case of any sensitivities that mm. may be out there. But I think for the general public, cancer awareness is really important. The Guys Cancer Centre actually held a public engagement event aimed towards cancer patients where I presented a poster on my previous project and that was really amazing. Obviously presenting to school kids is something but presenting to, to the actual patients themselves was really rewarding and in a different way and talking to them and how you know they were really interested about the molecular aspect of the disease as well and that was a really eye-opening experience for me and I think these are the kinds of benefits that come from engaging with the public because mm. we we do tend to forget about it and how you know we can raise their awareness and how we can make them aware of what we're trying to do to help them in the long run yeah yeah we had we had a lot of those discussions at the the Royal Society I mean we were there for a week and I know we had about probably about 50 60 volunteers and I'm sure every single one of them probably had about five six conversations minimum about about cancer and with with someone who's spouse or a family member had had cancer I had several conversations with people who who'd had cancer and yeah I completely agree it's extremely eye-opening and and you know I one of the things we did was that we had an activity about how different types of treatment with radiation works and we had these conversations with people who had been treated with cancer and they would sort of be like well I didn't have this one you know is this a better one was I given the best treatment and those and those sort of conversations, and I, I, over the week you actually start to come up with quite a good way of talking about it and quite a honed way of, of, of talking about it. You know, we our team was made up of PhD students, postdocs, lecturers, and I'm sure they all quite humbled and found mm. a good way of talking about it. I actually had a terrible experience. So we had this activity where there are stick-on organs on this apron. So there are lungs and intestines, and there was a heart and an esophagus, etc. And there was a very tiny amount of radioactivity in one of those organs and we had these detectors which you could like hold in your hands yourself and find where the radiation was on that apron and it was one of my first times on the stand and I put it on this lovely really sweet elderly gentleman and was like okay giving my usual blurb like there is a tiny bit of radioactivity in these organs on the apron find it with this detector sort of thing and I'm not sure if he'd heard me properly because I think he was a bit, bit elderly anyway so he finds this radi radiation in his lungs and looks up at me with fear of god in his eyes and was like is that just is that everyone or is it just me because I've had lung cancer and my heart just dropped I was like oh my goodness it was really I mean it's a massive learning experience but it can be frightening to talk to the public as well we had a we had a very very similar incident uh, the previous year so the previous year we had a stand called the uh, heart in your hands and it was all about uh like the study of the heart and we had this really one of the central things was this cool thing where you it was kind of like a model beating heart so what you do is attach a, like a pulsometer to the person and they were and the, the the heart would start beating in the person's hands so you could literally hold in your, sync. your heartbeat yeah in so, sync with your heartbeat yeah and um there was an incident where basically it stopped working um and so it was attached to a person and the heart just stopped in his hands and 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 in their hands and this was a patient this is someone who'd had previously had an issue with their heart then they'd had a heart attack or something and so like literally in that moment they had this terrible experience 
and it's all fine, you know, we got them off, just said, so it's broken, you know, got to sit down. But it's inevitability when you've got like something like that, you know, where you, you have 12,000 people, something's bound to happen. And you have lots of different views as well. Like you have people who, you know, we had, we had a lot of stuff about animal research on our stand and we had one or two people who were staunchly against animal research and probably thinks anyone who does it is completely evil but we probably gave them a leaflet and and said you know consider it you know i think the key thing with public engagement is sometimes you have to accept that you can't necessarily reach everyone i think any conversation you have with anyone you can you can even you can teach that person something or or learn something from them but it could be something as simple as brazil nuts are radioactive uh and and that's at least something right (laughs) i mean public engagement by definition is a two-way process isn't it you interact with the people that you're engaging with but you also get something out of it yourself absolutely that's a great point so since this podcast is aimed at people looking to do PhDs or people doing PhDs, why don't we pull a little bit of expertise or hints and tips for people looking to do more public engagement? So do you have any anything you recommend, anything you really enjoyed? So I think one great way of becoming more engaged with research in general is by reading um, and writing blogs. So I was reading different science blogs and I've got my own one called Thoughts of a Scientist so I talk about anything that I'm interested in um, whether that's religion and science or whether it's women in in science Um, I think it's important to read kind of outside general lab based things What about you Peter? Um, I'd say there's there's lots of public engagement going on all the time at, at all universities you might not know it's happening but you'll probably know someone who's doing it or they will know someone who knows the person doing it so if you are interested, try and seek that out. There's also lots of different kind of third party organizations that do it. So I'm a scientist, get me out of here. Soapbox Science. Uh, there's a Pint of Science Festival, which happens every year. And, and KCL in particular do, I think, six different events at least. And they're always looking for volunteers. There's also the uh, SciCom socials that happen in London. So that's uh, SCI dash com c-o-double-m and they're really good and the the small amount of time i've spent with that community has been really really cool and a lot of those people are non-scientists who do public engagement for a living and they are incredible at it uh and and a lot of their and a lot of their mantra is that you do not need to be a scientist to to do public engagement Mm. um really good tips yeah so i think a couple that i've picked up are the Brilliant Club for um, tutoring in low participation schools. They give excellent training as well. Uh, and one that I've heard about but not interacted with yet is the University of the Third Age, which is where older people can go to universities and you can get a bit of an ego boost by giving your own sort of little seminars and things, which I, I'm really keen to get involved with. Um, but then there's also podcasts. So, <laughs> you know, find find ones that you can engage with. Chances are you already have if you're listening. <laughs> So, Katie, any ideas from you as well? Yeah, well, my my final tip would be three-minute thesis, which I've participated in this year and has been so much fun. (laughs) And our other podcast member, Emily Pripper, has also did that last year and she did really well as well. So anyone interested in learning how to talk about your projects and your research, then three-minute thesis is definitely a good way in. So thanks, Mads, for introducing your research. That's been really interesting. And thank you also to Arzan and to Peter for talking about your experience with public engagement. 
So we will link all of the things that we've talked about in this episode in the show notes. And remember, if you have any thoughts about what we've talked about, you can tweet us at postocalypse 18 or drop us an email at postocalypsepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you've liked our podcast so far, please do spread the word. And you can also like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to help get us noticed. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.